Galatians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10 this morning. Um, I, was, uh, I was with Dave and Pat Cable at the hospital this week, and we talked a little bit about this passage together, and one of the things we said while we were together is uh, th- this is not a passage that you hear quoted very often, but it's extremely important. Um, all of us maybe have uh, some verse somewhere in our house, uh, posted on the wall somewhere. But I, I'm, I'm willing to guess that none of you have Galatians 2 verse 3 somewhere in your home. Even, even Titus uh, was not required to be circumcised. Um, but what I want to suggest to you today is that verse is every bit as important as verses that you have committed to memory or some of the verses you may have displayed in your homes. Even Titus was not required to be circumcised. We'll think about that uh, this morning. But before we read this passage, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, take your word now and open it up to us and give us understanding. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we pray that Christ would be exalted in our midst today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's hear God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running Or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, sometime after Paul established these churches in Galatia, teachers came in to these churches and began to teach a different gospel, which according to chapter 1, verse 7, is no gospel at all, but in fact a distortion of it, a distortion of the truth. In a nutshell, their gospel said that you you need to trust in Jesus to be saved But there's more to it than that. 
Paul's gospel is true as, it, as far as it goes, but it's inadequate. It needs to be added to. It needs to be qualified. And so these teachers came into the Galatian churches and they tacked on their requirements. And what they did is they added law-keeping to faith in Jesus for a person to be justified. To, to be right with God and be a first-class member of the family of God, you need to trust in Christ and do works of the law. But in order, to, I think, to get a hearing with the Galatian uh, Christians, these teachers, they also had to accomplish something else. They also had to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. And the way that they did that, I think, went something like this. Paul is a, a, uh, a second-rate apostle teaching a second-rate gospel. He's a newcomer to the apostolic band, and he relied upon the Jerusalem apostles from whom we come to get his gospel. But then when he went out and started preaching the gospel, he made a mess of it. He got it all wrong. He got off track. And so now here we are, coming from Jerusalem and we've come to set things straight for you. I think that was uh, part of their argument in these Galatian churches. So these teachers came to the churches to correct Paul's gospel and to challenge his apostleship. And these first two chapters of Galatians were, were written by Paul in order to defend his gospel and his apostolic authority. We've seen this already. Right out of the gate, Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through men, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And in very similar language, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells the Galatians that the gospel that he preached is not from men, nor was he taught it. He received it by a revelation from Jesus Christ. So his apostleship is from God and his gospel is from God. That is Paul's initial response to the attacks of, of these false teachers. I think, but you've got to put yourself in the shoes then of the Galatian Christians. Paul has argued, I'm not a second-rate apostle with a second-rate gospel. But now that raises another challenging question for the Galatian Christians. Here are these teachers who have come into the churches coming from Jerusalem, at least in some way claiming to represent the Jerusalem apostles, here's the question. Does that now mean that there is disunity and disagreement among the apostles? Is there doctrinal disagreement among the apostolic band? These false teachers coming from Jerusalem represent allegedly the apostles' teaching in Jerusalem. So are there now competing gospels circulating around the church? And if so, which one is, is right? So you see, once Paul's authority as an apostle is confirmed, there's still this other serious question that Paul needs, needs to, to address. Is there disunity and disagreement among the apostles? Why is this important? Well, remember the words of Paul in, in Ephesians, the church is, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And if there's a disagreement among the prophets, then therefore there is, there's a crack in the foundation. And as Jesus says, no house in a different context, but no house divided against itself can stand. And so now this is the, the, the issue that Paul is turning to in Galatians 2 verses 1 
and 10. He's addressing the question of alleged disunity among the apostles. And, and we need to see here, this will help us, I think, understand these verses. Paul wants to at the, simultaneously maintain two important truths. On the one hand, my apostleship and my gospel are independent. My apostleship does not come from men down there in Jerusalem. And I didn't get my gospel from them. I got my apostleship, the office of apostle, and the message that I proclaim directly from Jesus Christ. He wants to maintain that truth. But then secondly, he also at the same time wants to maintain the truth that I stand with the apostles in proclaiming the very same gospel. Even though I didn't get it from them. And while I stand on equal footing with them as an apostle, we proclaim the very same message of Jesus Christ crucified, given for our sins, and therefore the apostles are not disagreed, they are united. Alright, so now as Paul addresses the question of alleged disunity among the apostles, let me just outline this passage for you. In verses 1 through 10. I think it unfolds like this. In verses 1 and 2, Paul recounts uh, when, with whom, and why he went to Jerusalem. In verses 3 through 5, Paul recounts his encounter with these false brothers and how he resisted them and didn't give an inch in order to preserve the gospel. And then in verses 6 through 10, Paul recounts his encounter with the apostles and how they added nothing to his gospel and gave him the right hand of, of fellowship. So that's an outline of our passage. Now, how does Paul answer the question then of alleged disunity among the apostles? I think there's two sides to his response. The first is there in verse 6. Glance down at verse 6 with me. Those who seem to be influential, he's referring there to the apostles, added nothing to me. So that's the first part. They added nothing to my message. And then verse 9, second part of Paul's response, James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's response to alleged disunity could be summed up like this. When I set before the, the apostles my gospel and explained it to them. They added nothing to it. No revisions. They said, yep, Paul, that's it. Amen. And then positively, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, recognizing God is at work in you, Paul. You go to the Gentiles. We'll go to the Jews. We're together in this. Preach the gospel. There's one gospel. Now, Think about this. Follow Paul's logical argument here. What does that compel the Galatian Christians to conclude? Here are these teachers. The teachers who question Paul's apostleship and urge the Galatians to turn away from the gospel Paul preached do not represent the Jerusalem apostles and the teaching that is coming out of the Jerusalem church. They are, in the words of verse 4, false brothers seeking to lead the church away from the freedom of the true gospel into spiritual slavery. So he's saying, stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. Do not submit yourselves to slavery. 
Now, what I want to do is, that's a quick summary of these 10 verses. And uh, today's sermon might be a little bit different. What we're going to do, instead of looking at the outline and detail of this passage, we're going to walk through this passage together and notice some details along the way. And then I want to pause a, a few times and draw out some applications for us. So let's begin in this first section, verses uh, 1 and 2, where Paul recounts his trip to Jerusalem. Look at those verses again with me. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, when notice here when Paul went up to Jerusalem. He says it's 14 years uh, I think the 14 years refers to 14 years after his conversion or 11 years after his first visit when he spent 15 days with uh, the Apostle Peter in Jerusalem. If you go back to Acts, um, the book of Acts tells us that, uh, or at least has a record of Paul visiting Jerusalem on four occasions. Uh, the first visit I just mentioned, his first trip was to spend time with the Apostle Peter, for 15 days. His second trip was to take a gift to the poor Christians who were suffering during a time of famine. That's in Acts 11. His third trip was for what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And his fourth visit was his last because he was arrested and sent to Rome. And that's all recorded in Acts chapters 21 through, through 28. So the question then that people discuss is which visit does uh, Galatians 2 correspond with? And I'll tell you my own view. I'm not going to make a case for it. We can talk about it another time. My own view is that this is Paul's second visit to Jerusalem that corresponds with Acts chapter 11, when he made the trip with Barnabas in response to a revelation. We're told here in Galatians 2, I think that revelation refers to the revelation that Agabus received in Acts 11, about the upcoming famine in the land of Jerusalem. So Paul went to bring relief to the Jerusalem Christians who were suffering, not only from poverty, but also from famine. And I think that also corresponds with, as Paul's going back out again, verse 10, Paul, remember the poor. And he says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Now, what I want to stop there and draw an application here. Don't miss how important mercy ministry is to the apostles. Notice their pressing concern here for, for the physical care of Christians in need. If I'm right about this being a second visit, Paul came to Jerusalem to bring relief to Christians who were suffering from poverty and famine. And we know from uh, other parts in the New Testament that some Gentile churches had very wealthy members, but by and large, the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea were, were poor. And so he's bringing, he's bringing relief, physical relief, to these dear Christians, these brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are suffering. And one of the things I think we should see here is for Paul and the other apostles, they were agreed that mercy ministry is fundamental and it's a necessary work of the church. It's not the gospel, but it is a result of the gospel. So, for example, Acts chapter 20, 
uh, where Paul is giving his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. It's, it's a moving word that Paul gives to these dear brothers. Tears are in their eyes. And it's striking. One of the last things that Paul says to these men is, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I want us to see from this passage, be be challenged. Let's remember that we are called to care for and to give to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think first within our own local church and then insofar as we are able and even at times beyond our means to give to those who are in need in other congregations. See, it's one way I think we demonstrate our unity in the gospel. It's, it's one way that we demonstrate that we are the body of, of Christ. It's, it's one way as well. Christ provides for his own people. Think about that. Through you, the risen Christ provides for his own people in need. So this is uh, likely Paul's uh, second trip to Jerusalem, bringing famine relief primarily. But while he's there, he confers with the Jerusalem apostles to ensure that they were united, that they were agreed on the gospel. And take a look at who he brought with him. Paul took Barnabas, a, a Jewish Christian, circumcised, and Titus, a Gentile, uncircumcised believer. Now, that should cause us to raise a question. Why does he bring Barnabas and Titus along with him? I think Barnabas makes sense. He's a Jewish believer makes and a partner in ministry. But I think the more important question is, is why, why did Paul bring Titus? And I think the simple answer is Paul's not messing around. He realizes that the doctrine of the church has real-life consequences for, for real people. The Judaizers, as they're called, said you must believe in Christ and be circumcised in order to be justified. And so Paul forces the issue and he brings Titus and says, here is Titus, Greek, uncircumcised, justified brother in Christ. This is my message. This is what I stand for. What do you have to say? You see, it forced the issue. If the apostles compelled Titus to be circumcised, then the gospel was lost. And there was indeed doctrinal disagreement. But if the apostles agree with Paul that Titus did not need to be circumcised, then the gospel was preserved and the false teachers were rejected. The gospel which says we are justified by faith alone in Christ apart from any work that we do. And so Titus was, if you like, he was, he was a test case that Paul took along with him. It was, I think, one of the best ways to deal with the issue head on. Take an uncircumcised Gentile Christian to Jerusalem and say, here he is, free in Christ, uncircumcised. What do you think? Now, I think, let me say this, circumcision is is no longer a a debated issue in the church. I don't uh, think anyone here at Trinity is arguing that, uh, or making the case that you need to be circumcised in order to be justified. So maybe you're thinking, what's this got to do with us? I mean, this is, a, this is a potential disagreement that's far removed from us. Well, what I want you to see here is that the underlying issue that Paul is confronting 
is always relevant within the church of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul is addressing an issue. He is fighting for something fundamental to the gospel that needs to be fought for at all times, in all churches, in all places. And the issue is this. What does it take to become a Christian and a first-class citizen in the family of God? By what means are we, are we justified? Is it, is it by faith alone or is it by faith plus some kind of work that we add on to our faith? Is it faith alone or faith plus works that um, are enough for a person to have right standing before God and be forgiven by God? That's the fundamental issue here. And when you recognize that, you see right away that this is always a relevant issue within the church. On what basis, beloved, on what basis are you forgiven and accepted by God? And the issue here is, is it by faith in Christ or is it by faith plus works of law? And Titus is exhibit A in the early church that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and it's all by God's grace. And so Paul went to Jerusalem to to bring famine relief. He brought Titus as a, a test case to press the issue and uh, Paul also, while he visits with the apostles, wants to make sure that he had not been running in vain. Now, don't misread that. Don't get the impression here that Paul has started to have doubts about his gospel. Paul is thinking, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe those other teachers are right and I've slipped a little bit. Maybe, maybe I've gone off track and so what I need to do is, is go check with the Jerusalem apostles and and, and maybe they can set me straight again. That's, that's totally ludicrous to understand Paul that way because Paul has just said not too long ago, the gospel that I preach to you, I received directly from Jesus Christ. There's, there's no higher authority to appeal to. So don't get the impression that Paul is saying, I needed to go to the apostles and, and just make sure and get confirmation that my message was, was right. Instead, I think the right way to understand this verse is Paul is saying, I was going to see if I had not been running in vain because if the Jerusalem apostles had given in to these false teachers, then the gospel was lost. The gospel was compromised. There was disagreement in the early church. Now, I want to, uh, I want to draw out an, an implication from this. All right, here's the idea. Paul was conferring with the apostles to confront doctrinal disagreement within the church. And as we'll see, not disagreement among the apostles, but because of these false brothers. But let's draw out an application from this. Paul, Paul went to the apostles and set before them his gospel in order to deal with disagreement within the church. He confronted it head on, forthrightly. And from this, I think we can draw a lesson. It is... It is Christ's will, will that we deal with disagreement within the church of Jesus Christ. And if, if we're going to follow the teaching of Jesus, then brothers and sisters, we must be willing to confront. And this doesn't just apply to apostles. It doesn't just apply to pastors and elders. It applies to us as Christians. If, if you know someone is wrong, doctrinally or morally. You don't, you don't go around spreading rumors, talking about them. 
You ask God to give you the grace and go and talk to them. Confront the issue head on. Now, none of us are itching to do that, are we? None of us like the sweaty hands or the stress that goes along with that. And, and we try, therefore, we try to avoid it. We, we turn away from it. We don't like confrontation. But what I want to say to you is the desires for, for personal comfort and the fear of conflict, which comes from, uh, you know, keeps us from lovingly confronting our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what I want to say. It is not of faith. It, it is of the flesh. That fear of confrontation. It is not of faith. It is of the flesh. That means it is what you do when you are depending on your own resources and your own reason instead of relying upon Christ and his word. Galatians chapter 5 verse 24. Paul says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, putting your faith in Christ, the flesh and its desires are crucified and the believer is enabled to walk by the Spirit and therefore enabled to do what Paul does here, to deal with issues lovingly, humbly, but clearly and forthrightly. But the thing is, Here's the thing, if, if we rely upon the flesh instead of walking in the spirit, whatever peace we may obtain among our brothers and sisters or within the church of Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, it's always, always going to be a superficial peace that will not last. Why do I say that? Because Paul says in Galatians that the works of the flesh are Evident. In other words, they always bear the same fruit. Listen to the fruit of the works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. That's the kind of thing that works of the flesh achieve in the church of Jesus Christ. So here's a lesson I think we can learn from Paul's example here. Christ wants us to confront doctrinal and moral disagreement lovingly, humbly, but forthrightly. Now let's go to the next section here in verses 3 through 5. Paul recounts here standing against the false brothers. Look at these verses. Even Titus, who was with me, here's the verse you can put on your walls at home. Now you know. He was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That'd be a great conversation starter, by the way. Uh, verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Titus was not compelled to be circumcised by the church in Jerusalem even though he was a Greek. You see, Paul, remember, Paul's writing to the Galatian Christians and he wants them to see this. He wants them to understand how vitally important this is. The false teachers, here they are, they're saying, you must be circumcised in order to really be a genuine Christian. In order to really be right with God. Here, you must be circumcised. And Paul says, I went to the Jerusalem apostles. I set before them my gospel. I brought Titus with me. And who do they stand with? Not the false teachers. 
They stand with me. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. I think this verse, though, it brings up something else we should take a couple minutes to think about. And some of you probably are already anticipating where I'm going with this. Because here's, here's Titus, and Paul is, is insisting that he does not need to be circumcised. Now, let me throw uh, something out there for you. In Acts 16, you remember what happens there? What does Paul do? Paul circumcises Timothy. Acts 16, verse 3. Listen to what it says. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul wants to take Timothy with him to minister the gospel to the Jews. So he takes Timothy aside, and he, and he circumcises him. Now, when you look at those two cases, at first you might say, what's the deal here? What's going on? Is Paul contradicting himself or is Paul being inconsistent why why does he insist that and he will not budge here why does he insist that Titus need not be circumcised and then take uh, Timothy aside and have him circumcised now I don't it might seem like a dilemma at first but I don't think it's actually that hard to, to answer the reason Paul had Timothy circumcised is because Paul and Timothy wanted to become all things to all people in order that some might be saved. In other words, Paul, in his ministry of the gospel, he was willing to bend over backwards to have open doors to share the gospel with people. As long as it did not compromise the gospel and as long as it did not require uh, disobedience to God, Paul would go to great, great lengths to take the gospel to people. He would bend over backwards as long as he could remain faithful to the gospel and, uh, and, and faithful to his Lord. But when it comes to Titus, Paul will not budge an inch. He is not willing to bend over backwards. And you see why that is. Because some were saying circumcision is necessary for salvation. And Paul understood that as soon as you say that, you've lost the gospel. As soon as you add that onto faith in Jesus Christ, you have compromised the good news of Jesus Christ. You've destroyed it. So Paul and the apostles, they won't budge an inch on these demands because conceding it would be to compromise the, the very gospel itself. And then in verses 4 through 5, though, <coughs> Paul shows the Galatian Christians, that these teachers, they're, they're false brothers rejected unanimously by the apostles. He, he shows that these men who come from Jerusalem, demand circumcision, demand works to be accepted by God, they do not have the commendation of the apostles. And we did not yield to them for a moment in order that the gospel might be preserved for you. That's astonishing when you think about it, isn't it? It's remarkable. What Paul, hear what Paul is saying. If the apostles had given in to the demand of these false brothers, then the gospel may very well have been lost. One little exception. One little concession. And there would have been no good news. You can imagine people today saying, come on, Paul. You know, for, for the sake of unity. Uh, let's, let's make this concession. Okay, Titus. 
you need to be circumcised. Let's satisfy the demands of these brothers, then we can all move forward together. And Paul says, no, they would not yield at all because adding works to faith in Jesus for right standing with God is a denial of the gospel. Do you understand that? The gospel the apostles stood for was was basically this, the good news of, of right standing with God that was obtained by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is received by faith alone, apart from works. If you add works to faith in order to be accepted by God, you have denied the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you don't understand that, you you don't understand the gospel. It's free. Acceptance with God was purchased by Christ and it is received by faith alone or it's no gospel at all. Now let's look at this final section here really quickly in verses uh, 6 through 10 where where Paul recounts his meeting with the apostles. And here's where Paul gets to definitively dealing with the alleged disunity among the apostles. Remember, big, big picture, that's the issue here. Paul is addressing this idea of the possibility of disunity among the apostolic band. And take a look at his twofold response again. Verse 6, they added nothing to me. When I set my gospel before them, they did not amend it. They did not correct it. They did not revise it. They did nothing. They heard it and they said, yes, that's the gospel. Then in verses 7 through 10, you have the positive action of the leaders in Jerusalem. Just take a look at verse 9 again. When James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. See it? They added nothing to my gospel, and positively they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And remember now, this letter was written to the Galatian Christians who've been bewitched by these false teachers who have challenged unity around the gospel and challenged Paul's apostolic authority. And Paul is saying, I went to the Jerusalem apostles. I laid before them my message. They confirmed it and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So in other words, he's saying, they recognized my gospel as their gospel and they recognized my commission to the Gentiles. Do you see what his argument compels the Galatian Christians to conclude. Those men who have come in after the Apostle Paul, they are the false brothers. They are the ones leading people astray, away from freedom into bondage. Now, let's, let's make two closing applications here. Uh, maybe this is because we have a class on apologetics right now, but this is going to be an apologetic application. Uh, think about... Think about the right hand of fellowship with me. Peter, James, and John, and Paul uh, shaking one another's hands. Uh, a, fellow, a fellow pastor friend of mine gave me a commentary on this passage, and the commentary said, this might just be the most important handshake in the history of the world. Why? Do you see what it means, brothers and sisters? It means that we have one apostolic faith, one gospel, one message, one church that has been passed down and preserved for us. 
It's incredible. So what's the application here? Well, I think this scene here of the apostles giving one another the right hand of fellowship, it, it silences an objection raised against early Christianity. All right, follow this with me. The, the objection goes like this. If you were in Sunday school earlier this year, you, you heard it. Early Christianity from the beginning was rife with theological disagreement and doctrinal diversity. There was no Christianity singular. There was only Christianities plural. From the very beginning, that was the state of the church of Jesus Christ. That's how the argument goes. And Bible critics and scholars have been making this argument for some, really some time now. But more recently, it's been popularized. And a lot of people who are looking for reasons to disbelieve the Christian faith will sling this objection in your face and say, look, you can't even get back to what the alleged original apostolic gospel is. All you have that's been preserved is one version of Christianity, the version of the theological winners. All right, so from the very beginning of the church, the argument goes, there were different gospels. There was no early consensus on the gospel, just complete, uh, competing opinions. And, and different Christian groups tried to impose their own gospel on different Christian groups. And the gospel that you and I say is the apostolic gospel is simply the gospel of those who were in power, right? Those who had enough force to impose it upon the rest of the church of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the argument in a nutshell is the gospel you say is the only gospel there is. That's just one, uh, the message of one group of Christians that was imposed upon the church. It's not the apostolic message that early Christians united around. It's just the message that enough people had the power to enforce. All right, and you see how in our postmodern context where you know diversity is sacrosanct and truth is basically whatever you'd like it to be, it's subjective or at best it's ultimately unknowable, how that kind of argument makes a lot of headway as, as people throw it out there today. Uh, now, with that objection in mind, just think about this. Look at Paul shaking hands with Peter, James, and John. You know, this wasn't just a friendly handshake. This was the right hand of fellowship, where the apostles were saying, brothers and sisters, in the 40s AD, were agreed on the gospel. I'm not adding that word, the, it's there. The gospel that we receive from Jesus. We're united around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that handshake said. And my friends, that gospel hasn't changed. The gospel that united the early church is the very same gospel that has been preserved for us. It's the same gospel that saves and changes people's lives. But we can go a little bit further here. Just a couple minutes. Think about this. This handshake of these four men also represents 21 of 27 of the books in the New Testament. Think about that. 21 of 27 books of the New Testament. Paul's letters, John's gospel and his letters, Peter's letters, Peter's letters and James, James's book. 
Uh, you could say it represents even more than that because some of the books of the New Testament have the apostles standing directly behind them, such as Mark's gospel, which is, is, is basically Peter's eyewitness testimony. So that leaves Matthew, Luke, Hebrews, and Jude. Well, Matthew, there he is. He's one of the twelve. <laughs> He's a part of the apostolic band. Luke was Paul's companion. And you read the gospel of Luke and you're reading the theology of, of Paul. Hebrews, well, that's one we can discuss, but it was, it was surely authorized, if not authored by one of the apostles. Jude, well, there's his brother James shaking Paul's hand. So there is a sense in which, indirectly, all 27 books of the New Testament are authorized by these men. So my simple application is, is this, friends. I want you to see that while critics argue that there was doctrinal chaos in the early church. In fact, there was fundamental unity around the apostolic gospel as early as we can go back, and we can go back very, very early. The early church knew what the gospel was, and that same gospel has been preserved and passed down to us. It was not a gospel made up by man and imposed upon the church. I want to... Here's the second application now. Here's very, very briefly. I want you to see. Well, I want you to see the grace and love of God in preserving the gospel. You know, we, we owe Paul and the other apostles a great debt of gratitude. I mean, Paul gave his life and he laid down his life for the sake of the gospel. But, but dear friends, Paul is not the one we ultimately owe our gratitude to. The one we ultimately owe our gratitude to is God. Because if it was God who planned the gospel from before the foundations of the world, if it was God who in the fullness of time sent forth his son to become flesh and to live among us and to live a sinless life and to die in the place of sinners on the cross and he was raised again from the dead... And if it, was, if it was God who set apart and called the apostles, and if it was God who spoke through the preaching of the apostles and worked through them, then it's all of God, isn't it? And the apostles recognize that here. It was all God's work preserving the gospel for us. And my friends, see things in the big picture. This is incredible. That same gospel has made its way around the world to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Do you see the love and grace of God here? It brings us, I think, to a closing question. If God planned the gospel before creation, if he sent forth his, his one and only son to live for us and to die for us, if he, if he raised him from the dead, set apart and called apostles to preach and write down the gospel they received from the risen Lord. And if after 2,000 years that gospel has been preserved and it has come to you, then my friends, don't you have to say God has revealed his love and grace to you? Doesn't it inevitably lead us to conclude that? The gospel has come to you, my friends. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sin and raised for our salvation. It is, it is freely offered to you today. And the invitation is this. Trust in Christ who, who came to deliver us from our sin. That, 
that's all you need. If you add works that you do to faith in Jesus Christ, you've lost everything. But if you have Jesus Christ and you cling to him by faith, then my friends, you have everything necessary for life now and life for all eternity. See the love and the grace of God and the preservation of the gospel as he proclaims it to you today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you that you have preserved it and delivered it to us. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here would see the love and grace for sinners that you revealed to us in the gospel. And may each and every one of us go on to believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.